This is Brilliant Minds in Conversation. I'm Alice Thornycroft and this episode of the podcast was recorded live in front of an audience at our Brilliant Minds showcase in London. My guest today is Christian Gleave, a former Royal Air Force fighter pilot and group captain and a member of the RAF acrobatic team, the Red Arrows. Christian has also served in the Pentagon, holding the position of UK strategic advisor to the chief of the United States Air Force. I started by asking Christian, how do you select a Red Arrows team? First of all, I guess the thing to to point out is um, the team isn't all selected at once. Right. Um, It's a three-year posting for a standard pilot on the team. Um, You cycle through that three years and at the end of it, move back to the front line. But um, it would be wrong of the RAF to select all of those nine pilots at once because by doing so, you would dilute the skill set in the team immediately. So what happens is there is a very strong hierarchy in the team. And as you become a third year or second year or third year in the team, you're carrying that innate experience through the team. And the junior guys, the junior guys who are in themselves very experienced fighter pilots, come to the team in that first year and build experience alongside their their teammates. Um, And that's done for a number of reasons. So first of all, not all at once, really important point. Then um, there are some prerequisites. You have to have 1,500 hours combat time in a fast jet. There are no places in the Red Arrows for anyone who's not a fast jet pilot. Uh, You have to be assessed as above average in role. And that generally occurs for a, a good frontline pilot after about four years of flying, which is concurrent with the number of hours. And then you need to sit an interview um, after a shortlist process. Every year there are about 250 applicants, and the shortlist um, boils it down to about 20. And from that 20, the team self-select. So what happens is um, they select nine pilots of that 20 to come away um, with them for a week. And you spend what's called shortlist week with the team where you do a flying test. But predominantly you have um, what I would describe as a cultural fit examination. Ah. Do, you, do you gel with the team? Um, can you travel with the team? Um, are you resilient to the aspects of flying that you're expected to be? And they self-select. And so there are three selected every year. Wow. So in that, that's interesting, that kind of cultural fit piece. So what do you do? What just sort of normal things? Or do you take them on special expeditions to test that? No, I mean, that week is literally um, spending a lot of time flying with the team. The team are right in the middle of what they call exercise spring halts, so they're displaying four times a day every day in Cyprus or somewhere sunny. Cyprus has changed based on what's happening at the moment in the Middle East. Um, I went to Cyprus two years in a row, and then we were in uh, Crete for one year. But wherever the weather is best, and that shortlist week is effectively flying with the team um, for those four trips, seeing and being scared often by what they do. Um, which is part of it. A lot, a lot of the shortlist at that point say it's not for me. I wouldn't want to do this because it's very intense. And at the end of that week, it's more a case of um, socially, do we trust this person, male or female? Do they fit in the team? Do we see them um, carrying the responsibility of not just advocating for the RF, but advocating for the nation? Because the team travel, mm-hmm. um, obviously, worldwide. And so even in my three years, well, three and a half for various reasons, and um, we went all the way down to Australia and back in an aircraft that doesn't air to air refuel. So you stop in pretty much every country on the way down. And therefore, your exposure is on behalf of the UK rather than just the Red Arrows. I want to ask you about a particular expedition um, or um, sortie that you were involved in. And I know this people might know about this because 
There was actually a film made about it, wasn't there? So this is in 2006. You were involved in an eight-hour sortie in Afghanistan where you learned a number of big life lessons. Can you take us back and describe what happened that day? Because there's an awful lot of really interesting learning to come from this. Yeah, so um, for those in the audience who may or may not have seen the film, the film is called Kajaki. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty um, explicit, painful journey. And through an incident that I was part of, I wasn't on the ground, so the incident happened on the ground in Afghanistan in 2006. Um, the day was the 6th of September. I'd been in theatre by that stage for about three months. I was, what, um, ironically, what they call the warlord on the squadron, which means the deputy boss. Um, so therefore, I was running the detachment of eight Harrier aircraft based at a place called Kandahar, which is in the middle of the Helmand region. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened was, on the day, the Taliban in 2006 were particularly vicious. Um, it's misunderstood that the fighting in Afghanistan happens mostly through the summer. It doesn't. It's too hot. Um, this particular day was 48 degrees Celsius. And you're also very high, um, which means the Taliban rest through the summer. So in September, it's their perfect fighting season. And the 3rd Battalion of the Parachute Regiment had deployed, ironically with me, and there are um, synergies with all crises that happen where there is a chain of events that um, can either be spotted or not, depending on how astute you are. And part of the chain of events that happened on that particular day for me was that, ironically, I had flown into theatre with the parachute regiment chaps who were trapped on the ground for this day. The alarm bell sounded. We were on what's called GS-15, which is ground control or ground scramble, 15 minutes, which means you have to be on an instant within 15 minutes. In reality, the aircraft was always prepped by the engineers, and we were on a call-out, so we could be there very quickly. And I responded um, that day as a pair of Harriers, as the flight lead. We fly as a pair, always, Mm -hmm. for mutual support to what I thought was what's called a tick, uh, troops in contact. In other words, I thought that the parachute regiment at the time, the information I was passed and the data I received was that they were in a fight with the Taliban. And the reality was that they weren't. Uh, it took me a while to understand and comprehend what had happened. But the reality was, if you've seen the film, that there was a um, Taliban checkpoint that the parachute regiment had decided to disrupt and had walked down off Kajaki Dam, which they were protecting into a ravine where they ended up in a Russian landmine area. And uh, one of them had lost the lower part of his right leg by standing on a landmine. And that created a chain of events, which I I won't talk about here because it takes too long, although I do talk about it in detail because that in itself is fascinating. And it ended up ridiculously with nine of those soldiers trapped in that minefield um, and only realizing as the ninth walked in that they were surrounded by mines. And because I was on top of the incident and I was the first to the scene, I was nominated by what's called Chariot, which is their headquarters, to be the on-scene commander of that incident. And so I had to put a firewall around the troops on the ground with my aircraft and protect them from a Taliban incursion, because once they were trapped, they were very vulnerable. They'd also lost some very sensitive equipment, which was on the ground. And so they wanted me to destroy the equipment with the weapons I had on board my aircraft, but I couldn't do that based on collateral damage risk to the people. So I arrived within about six minutes of the call. I was there eight hours later, and by that stage, cutting the story very short, um, all of them had been evacuated. Very sadly, um, Corporal Mark Wright, who was posthumously awarded the George Cross, was killed. He he died on the aircraft evacuation back to base, Bastion. And we had four amputees. It was the most bloody of the incidents that occurred in Afghanistan through the entire conflict. Uh, When you watch the film, there, there is no... There's no reference for air support, but there was a huge stack, if you like. If you imagine 
as I describe it to my kids, a Pringles box on top of the instant, um, which goes all the way up to about 30,000 feet. In that column of air, which goes out to about six, seven miles radius of the instant, there were about 112 aircraft by the time the instant finished. And I was in charge of them all because I was the first on scene. They call it Sandy Commander. So I acted as Sandy Commander for that instant. And whilst I could bore your audience about that for hours, the reality is there were some very important lessons that I learned from that, which are applicable to me in my own life, my own health, but I think more, more specifically for business. So talk to me about the communications of that eight hours. What, I mean, what are you, how, how do you manage that as somebody that's going to be in the ears of people who are stuck and trapped and in all sorts of trouble? Yeah, that, you're, you're pressing on a very um, relevant and astute point, which is that um, as an aircraft above what is happening on the ground with no real physical contact, the only method of assuring the people on the ground is through what we call RT, radio telephony, communications. And it was a very a deeply stressful environment because the guy who I talked to and grown familiar with and become friends with, um, it, his reference is JTAC, J-T-A-C, it stands for Joint Tactical Air Controller. Every army platoon on the ground has somebody with a radio on their back and he's qualified in weaponeering things on the ground with support from aircraft. He's the only point of contact I have with that entire instance. So he's the node, if you like, the hub. And he was in tears for most of the instance. He just... Um, you know, he just couldn't cope with what was happening because it was a catastrophe. I mean, let's not get this wrong. You know, there were people folding over at very short notice and, and, and being hurt. And so I have many times, as painful as it is, listened to my own head-up display tape. Everything I say on the radio is recorded for post-event analysis. And interestingly, perhaps, I said, I am here for you 29 times in that eight hours. And I said very little else. Um, and there's a lesson in that in itself, because I, I felt slightly desperate. There wasn't a great deal I could do, apart from support and assure, um, and allow that incident to unfold on the ground while they were supporting each other. And how do you debrief something like that after the, an event of that magnitude? Yeah, you still do. Interestingly, I'm still catching up with the guys on the ground. Um, I've made very good friends with the medic, with the JTAC, um, I met Mark Wright's parents, the soldier that was killed, and went to his funeral. Um, so it, it, goes, it goes on. I don't think you ever forget that. Mm. More latterly, you went on then to work quite closely with the Pentagon. Yeah. And so what were you doing there? I was really fortunate. I, uh, I led a squadron. It's called the Aggressor Squadron in the UK. and was promoted to group captain and uh, posted out to the US. And... On the premise that I had a strategic mind, I'm not sure how I managed to get that job, but I snuck through the net and I ended up in the Pentagon working with the chief of the US Air Force, the most powerful airman in the world, um, with about a five, well, at the time there were $5 trillion worth of Air Force business running through 17 miles of corridors in the Pentagon. And uh, for two years, I spent most of my time treading those corridors between the chief's office and the various British contacts into that building because um, people often underestimate the influence and the power that the UK has in the US, not the other way around. Obviously, the US shapes our defence policy and shapes what we do in this country. Um, and more and more, the UK is leaning on the US for alliances and partnerships, particularly in conflict. Uh, that's why NATO has become resurgent in, in its importance of what's happening at the moment in Russia. But the real, reality was the UK had a very strong influence and I was the advocate um, on behalf of the UK in the Pentagon. Questions, if anyone has, please. Yes, oh, here we go. Uh, Dorian. With all the sort of challenges and traumas 
Personally, is your question, I guess, not generically. Personally, I play golf. <laughs> um, I love to be outdoors and I love the quiet. You know, back to Alice's question around communication, pace, tempo, um, assurance in a crisis is so important. Um, I liken this to, and it's a strange um, um, synergy, but art. You know, if you look at a good painting, sometimes the white canvas, the parts of white on a painting are more important than the paint. Silence in a crisis is almost more important than noise. And so I love to extract myself from the noise, and I'm talking about generic noise. Interestingly, when I speak to Jess on the phone and the, and the signal is poor, and I'm intermittent, or she is intermittent, I find that deeply stressful. Um, I, I'm not sat here, by the way, um, saying I have PTSD, um, because there are soldiers out there who have seen much worse than I. And interestingly, I was listening to James talk, double impacts or triple impacts on a brain and the psychology of a brain have exponential effects and damage. So whilst I may be carrying some damage, scar tissue relating to operational flying, let's not forget, to put this in perspective, I'm at 25,000 feet outside Taliban weapons range in an air-conditioned cockpit. Right? You know, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to sit here and f want, uh, I'm not appealing to your sympathy. But what I am saying is, um, accumulatively, over a period of time, your brain becomes conditioned to stress, and it's only when you remove yourself from that stress, interestingly, that it merges to the top, it rises to the top. This was something the Air Force never really understood and is starting to understand, that um, when you're at the front line, at the tip of the spear, and you ask for weapons because you're running out of bombs, they arrive magically, thank goodness to the logistics system, two days later. When you come home, and therefore away from the operational um, stress, things, the bureaucracy, uh, stress those pilots, those operational pilots, because they didn't exist on the front line. So everyone says to me, gosh, how did you cope in Afghanistan, in, in Iran, in, um, or on the border of Iran, or you know, in Africa, all of these conflicts, Bosnia, Serbia, everywhere I've flown, the reality is it's more stressful, ironically, sometimes coming home. <laughs> I'm not sure I've answered your question, but um, everybody's coping in different ways. One thing I, I listened to James talk about I thought was fascinating was, thank you, James, was the, the ability to confide in people who you trust and share that experience with people who have been with you. Immensely important. There's so much I could ask you. I've got, you know, obviously more questions than we've got time for, but... Were you, were you fearful coming out of an institution like the military into another job? I'm just interested because you've spent a lot of time, obviously, in the military and now you're not. Was that frightening? Yeah, I was talking to Serene about this before I came on stage. That The idea is, I think, at some stage in your life, you reach... There's an algorithm for each of us. That algorithm is variable. For me, I looked on the curve and said, at some stage, I need to either stay or jump. Staying had upsides, but it also had downsides. I stepped away from a cockpit, I moved away from frontline operational support and leading people, and it becomes much more of a desk job. Um, my brother, coincidentally at the time, who's seven years my junior, was doing immensely well in business. Um, and I looked and thought, I, I need to make a jump if I'm going to jump. Now, obviously, that carries risk. I was very fortunate in the sense that I jumped into a business that was up and coming. Um, but I think it's a personal choice. And I talk to all my friends who are now two and three star generals in the Air Force who have stayed. And they're loving it, of course. And they, jokingly, last night in the RF club were taking the Michael out of me for jumping, you know. Um, but the same is true for me. I feel like my, my life tapestry is richer for having 
left and for experience something outside which is very different to the institution of which I was a part for 26 years. Recorded live in front of an audience at our Brilliant Mind Showcase in London, that was Christian Gleave. If you enjoyed that episode, remember to subscribe to Brilliant Minds in Conversation on your favourite podcast app. To find out more about our guest today, head to harveythornycroft.co.uk and click Brilliant Minds.